Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more lights, and more love. We're diving into another lecture today, an incredible lecture. Alan Watts is going to talk to us about Hinduism, and it's something that I know a lot about, but can also learn a lot more about. So we're going to take a deep dive. We're going to dive into Hinduism with Alan Watts, the incredible philosopher who has graduated at a very young age, I might add, but he's over there. So we're going to listen to him outside of time and space. And as usual, during our lecture episodes, I always have a co-host. Usually I always have a co-host 90% of the time. Bryn Anderson of Vinyl Force Herbs is here. Hello, Bryn. Hey, how's it going? We are back. We're going to learn about Hinduism. We're going to learn about this with Alan Watts. Uh, do you know a lot about Hinduism? I, I would say that I know some about Hinduism. I think that I know a lot of general things, but I'm super interested in learning more. Taking a deep dive. We're going to do the Definitely. deep dive. It's... Uh, the foundation of all religions, perhaps, it goes back into prehistory. The Rig Vedas, the Vedic texts, they're saying 15,000 years. It's probably far longer. Time immemorial, yeah, as they say. Some serious history. So, yeah. So, before I do that, before we listen to the lecture, I need you to do something for me. Go to Blue Cobra CBD. Dot com that is blue cobra cbd.com and there you will find blue cobra cbd oil the highest quality cbd oil on the market period there's nothing else like it in the world <laughs> i'd say it every time why is that howard hits 76 year old man from oregon he owns blue cobra cbd and he created a proprietary extraction method. It is the HIT extraction method, meaning the method he uses to extract CVD from the hemp flower is his own. He created it. It uses no chemicals, no solvents, no gases. It's completely natural, 100% organ-grown organic weed, or should I say hemp flower? <laughs> 100% organic ingredients. Everything about it is organic. And his process completely keeps the CBD stable. I really have not had any product like this in the CBD world. And I have tried significant amounts of CBD products. I've even grown CBD plants myself. High quality. I know a lot about this. This is something I'm very versed in. And I can tell you there's nothing else like this. This is the absolute highest quality CBD product for treating all these ailments that CBD helps or supposedly helps based on personal testimony. There's three different kinds, King Cobra, Little King Cobra, 
and Wild Thing for Pets, CBD for Pets. You want your pets to have the highest quality products as well. Dog food, cat food, bird food, also CBD. We have a discount code. It gets you free shipping on any order. The discount code is big H, the word big, the letter H. Put that in the box. You get free shipping. Continental 48. I can't say enough good things about Blue Cobra CBD, so I'll just say it's powerful medicine. It is very powerful medicine, and it's not going to get you high like THC cannabis does, but it will heal you. And you want to heal yourself, as Bryn says with Vital Force Herbs. So go to bluecobracbd.com, use that discount code Big H to get free shipping, and check it out for yourself because there's a money-back guarantee. You can keep the shipping money even. Keep the product if you paid for shipping. Bluecobracbd.com. That is bluecobracbd.com. And when you're done with that, Follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow us there. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podchaser. Those are some of my top platforms in order in a way. There's also the Acast player. That's also way up there. So if you're using these, click the button that lets us connect a follow the like button whatever that is that lets you know when the next episodes are going to drop or when the new episodes drop or whatever we send through that pipeline you will get it and of course please tell a friend word of mouth so powerful it's a frequency it's the midnight on earth frequency help that frequency be amplified tell everyone you know <laughs> MidnightOnEarth.com. One more time, everyone. You already know what it is. But I'm just going to say it again. MidnightOnEarth.com. Okay. Okay. We got that out of the way. Social media shout out. Blue Cobra CBD. And now, even though he has left this dimension, I'm still going to read Alan Watts bio. That's what we do for our guests, whether they're tangible, intangible, gelatinous, or plasmic i'm not sure but here we go alan watts was a well-known british philosopher writer and speaker best known for his interpretation of eastern philosophy for western audiences born to christian parents in england he developed interest in buddhism while he was still a student at king's school canterbury Subsequently, he became a member of a Buddhist lodge where he met many scholars and spiritual masters who helped him to shape his ideas. He was a prolific writer and began writing at the age of 14. Many of his early works were published in the Journal of the Lodge. At the age of 23, he migrated to the USA where he first received training under a Zen master, but left before he was ordained. I wonder why. He then studied Christian scriptures and functioned as a priest in Chicago for six years before leaving for San Francisco to pursue an academic career. 
Simultaneously, he started giving talks on Eastern philosophy and soon developed a wide audience both at home and abroad. Apart from writing more than 25 books, aside from that, (laughs) he has also left an audio library of nearly 400 talks, which are still in great demand. And that's what we are going to listen to one of those high demand talks. This is a really good one. Like I said, we're going to be learning about Hinduism, something we really haven't broached on the podcast yet. We've talked about some of the concepts with Boom Shika way back in episode 26 or 25, I believe, somewhere in there. And we haven't really dived into it. So this is what we're going to do with Alan Watts. He's going to explain Hinduism to us. And as we always do with these lecture episodes, Bryn and I are listening with you in real time. We're listening. Same recording you are. And then at the end, after the recording's over, we regroup and kind of reconvene and talk about what we listen to. And some of the interesting points that came up. So that's the run of the show. So always stick around towards the end for even more incredibleness with Bryn and I. <laughs> Enlightening conversation after yes. the lecture. And are you ready, Bryn? I'm Hinduism. ready. Okay. Super ready. Okay, here we go. Everyone, this is Alan Watts Hinduism fully explained. Now, today I am going to go into the the very fundamental guts of Hinduism. But what I want to do is to begin with certain documents that are known as the Upanishads. And these documents constitute what is called Vedanta, V-E-D-A-N-T-A, And that is compounded of two words, Veda, Anta. Anta means end or completion or summation. Veda, of course, is related to the Latin video, to see. Veda is the fundamental revelation of the Hindu way of life contained in its earliest scriptural documents, which are generally dated in the period between 15 and 1200 BC. The Upanishads, as being the summation of the Veda, are uh, from, found from over a long period of time, beginning perhaps as early as 800 BC. Some of the Upanishads are much, much later than that. And the basic position of the Upanishads is that the self is the one and only reality without a second. That all this universe is finally Brahman and appears to be a multiplicity of different things and different events only by reason of Maya, which is illusion, magic, art, creative power. So then, it is basic to the Vedanta 
that Brahman, this intangible, non-objective ground of everything that exists, is identical with the ground of you. And this is put in the formula Tattvam Asi. T-A-T, Tat. Same as our word that. Tvam, T-V-A-M. Same as the Latin uh, Tuus, Thou, Asi, Art. We should translate that into a modern American idiom as You're It. This, of course, is a doctrine which is very difficult for those brought up in the Judeo-Christian traditions to accept because it is fundamental to Christian and Jewish theology that whatever you are, you are surely not the Lord God. And Christians feel about the Hindu doctrine that we are all fundamentally masks of God that it's pantheism, and that's a dirty word in Christian theological circles. Because of the feeling that if everything is God, then all moral standards are blown to hell. Because it means everything is as good as everything else. Everything that happens is really God, and this must include the good things and the bad things. And that seems to them a very dangerous idea. Actually, all religious doctrines contain very, very dangerous ideas. However, we won't worry about that for the moment because what the Hindu means by God when he says Brahman is not at all the same thing as a Jew means by the Lord Adonai because the Jew and the Christian means the boss to whom divine honors are due as above all others. The Hindu, on the other hand, does not mean the boss. He doesn't mean the king, the lord, the political ruler of the universe. He means the inmost energy, which, as it were, dances this whole universe without, as it were, the idea of authority, of governing some intractable element that resists his or its power. So if uh, a Christian or a person in a Christian culture announces that he has discovered that he is God, we put him in the loony bin because it's unfashionable to burn people for heresy anymore. But in India, if you announce that you're the Lord God, they say, well, of course, how nice that you found out. <laughs> because everybody is. So then, why uh, the great problem arises, does it appear that we are not? Why do we think, why do we have the sensory impression that this whole universe consists of a vast multiplicity of different things, and we don't see it all as one. Well, what would you think it would be like to see it all as one? I know a lot of people who study Oriental philosophy hear about attaining these great states of consciousness, nirvana, moksha, which the Hindus use, liberation, satori, Zen Buddhist word for enlightenment or awakening, 
Uh, what would it be like to have that? What, how would you feel if you saw everything is really one basic reality? Well, a lot of people think that it would be as if all the outlines and differentiations in the field of vision suddenly became vague, melted, and we saw only a kind of luminous sea of light. But rather advisedly, the Vedanta philosophy does not really seriously use the word one of the Supreme Self. Because the word and the idea one has an opposite, many, on one side, and another opposite, none, on the other. And it is fundamental to Vedanta that the Supreme Self is neither one nor many, but as they say, non-dual. And they express that in this word, Advaita. A is a negative word like non. Dvaita is from dva, same as the Latin duo, two. So Advaita is non-dual. And this at first for Westerners is a difficult conception. Because you naturally, as a Western logician would say, but the non-dual is the opposite of the dual. Therefore it has an opposite. True. But the Hindu is using this term in a special sense. It's like this. On a flat surface, I have only two dimensions in which to operate. So that everything drawn in two dimensions has only two dimensions. How, therefore, on a two-dimensional level, can I draw anything but two dimensions? How, in logic, in human rationality, can I possibly think except in terms of opposites? All rational discourse is talk about classification. The classification of experiences, of sensations, of uh, notions. And the nature of a class is that it's a box. And if a box has an inside, it has to have an outside. Is you is, or is you ain't, is fundamental to all classification. And we can't get out of it. It's almost as if, you see, whatever we see to be different is an explicit difference on the surface, covering an implicit unity. Only, it's very difficult to talk about what it is that unifies black and white. Of course, in a way, the eyes do. Sound and silence are unified by the ears. So, you, you can see, can't you, that if you can't have one without the other, it's like the poles of a magnet, North Pole and South Pole, you can't have a one-pole magnet. True, the poles are quite different. One's north and the other's south. But it's all one magnet. And some such idea as that is what the Hindu is moving into when he's speaking of the real basis or ground of the universe as being non-dual. Take it uh, 
the fundamental opposition that I suppose all of us feel between self and other, I and thou, I and it. There is something that is me, there's an area of my experience that I call myself, and there's another area of my experience which I call not myself. But you will immediately see that neither one could be realized without the other. You wouldn't know what you meant by self unless you experienced something other than self. You wouldn't know what you meant by other unless you understood self. They go together. They arise at the same time. You don't have first self and then other or first other and then self. They come together. And that shows, you see, the sneaky conspiracy underneath the two like the magnet between the two different poles. And so more or less that sort of uh, what isn't classifiable, but which lies between all classes. The class of elephants opposite the class of non-elephants uh, has, as it were, the walls of the box joining the two together. Just as your skin is an osmotic membrane that joins you to the external world by virtue of all the tubes in it and the nerve ends and the way in which uh, the external energies flow through your skin into your inside and vice versa. But we do, don't we, see and feel and sense, or we think we do, the world as divided into a great multiplicity. A lot of people would think of the universe as a collection of different things, a kind of cosmic flotsam and jetsam washed together in this particular area of space. And prefer to take a pluralistic attitude and don't see anything underlying. In fact, in uh, contemporary logical philosophy, the notion of any basic ground or continuum in which all events occur would be considered meaningless for obvious reasons. If I say that every body in this universe, every star, every planet, is moving in a certain direction at a uniform speed, that will be saying nothing at all unless I can point out some other object with respect to which they are so moving. But since I said the universe, that includes all objects whatsoever. Therefore, I cannot make a meaningful statement about the uniform behavior of everything that is going on. True. But on the other hand, every sound you hear on the radio, whether it be a honking horn, a Bach sonata, or a newscast, is the vibration of the diaphragm in your loudspeaker. The radio doesn't tell us this. The announcer doesn't come on first thing in the morning and say, ladies and gentlemen, uh, from now until closing time, all the sounds you will hear will be vibrations of the diaphragm in your speaker. That is taken for granted and, and ignored. So in the same way, your eardrum is basic to all that you hear. Your lens of the eye and retina is basic to all that you see. What is the color of the lens of the eye? 
we say it is no color, it is transparent. In the same way as a mirror has no color of its own. But the mirror is very definitely there, colorless as it may be. The eardrum, unheard as it may be, is very definitely basic to all hearing. The eye, transparent as it may be, is very definitely basic to all seeing. So therefore, if there were some continuum in which everything that is going on and everything that we experience occurs, we would not notice it. We would not be able, really, to say very much about it, except perhaps that it was there. It wouldn't make any difference to anything, except the one all-important difference, that if it wasn't there, there wouldn't be any differences. But you see, philosophers nowadays don't like to think about things like that. It stretches their heads, and they would rather preoccupy themselves with more pedestrian matters. But still, you can't help it. If you're a human being, you wonder about things like that. What is it in which everything is happening? What is the ground? Well, you say, obviously it's not a what, because the thing that is a what is a, is a uh, classifiable thing. And so, very often the Hindu and the Buddhist will refer to the ultimate reality as no thing. Not nothing, but no special thing. Unclassifiable. Can't put your finger on it, but it's you. It's what you basically are. What everything basically is. Just as... Uh, the sound of an automobile horn on the radio is in one way an automobile horn, but basically it is the vibration of the diaphragm. Okay, so you are all, in the Hindu view, vibrations of the entire cosmic diaphragm. Put it like that. That's analogy. And I'm using saguna language, or cataphatic language, from the point of Christianity. The best language is to say nothing but to experience it. How can you experience it? Well, that's the whole thing, as I pointed out last time. The nub of all these oriental philosophies is not an idea, not a theory, not even a way of behaving, but it's basically a way of experiencing, a transformation of everyday consciousness, so that it becomes quite apparent to us that that's the way things are. But you, when, you, when it happens to you, it's very difficult to explain it. So in exactly the same way, when somebody has uh, that sort of breakthrough which transforms his consciousness, and it happens all over the world, it's not just a Hindu phenomenon, when somebody suddenly realizes it's all one, or technically non-dual, and really uh, all, all, all this coming and going and all this frantic uh, living and dying, grabbing, struggling, fighting, suffering, all this is a fantastic phantasmagoria. But he sees that. But when he tries to explain it, he finds his mouth isn't big enough. <laughs> because he can't get the words out of their dualistic pattern to explain something non-dualistic. But why is this so? Why are we under this great, magnificent hallucination. Well, uh, the Hindus explain this 
in Saguna language as follows. It's a very nice explanation. A child can understand it. The fact of the matter is that the world is a game of hide and seek. Peekable. Now you see it, now you don't. Because, very obviously, if you were the Supreme Self, what would you do? I mean, would you just sit there and be blissfully one and uh, everything, forever and ever and ever? Well, obviously not. Uh, you would uh, play games. You would, in other words, for the very nature of the fact that I said, no energy system is an energy system unless it lets go of itself. So you would let go of yourself. And you would get lost. And you get involved in all sorts of adventures. And you would forget who you were. Just as when you play a game, you're playing poker. And although you're only playing for dimes or for chips, you get absorbed in the game. And you, nothing really important to win, nothing really important to lose, and yet it becomes fantastically interesting who wins and who loses. And so in the same way it is said that the Supreme Self gets absorbed through ever so many different channels, which we call all the different beings, in the plot, just like an artist or a writer gets completely absorbed in the artistic creation that he's doing. Or an actor gets absorbed in the part in the drama. At first we know it's a drama. We go to a play and we say it's only a play. And the proscenium arch tells us that what happens behind that arch is not for real. Just a show. But the great actor is going to make you forget it's just a show. He's going to have you sitting on the edge of your chair. He's going to have you crying. He's going to have you trembling because he almost persuades you that it's real. And what would happen if the very best actor was confronted by the very best audience? Why, they'd be taken in completely. And the one would confirm the other. So this is the idea of the universe as drama. That the fundamental self, the Saguna, Brahman, plays this game, gets involved in being all of us, and does it so damn well, the, the, it's so superbly acted that the thing appears to be real. And we're not only sitting on the edge of our chair, but we start to get up and throw things. We join in the drama, and it all becomes uh, whatever it is that's going on here, you see? Then, of course, at the end of the drama, because all things have to have an end, that have a beginning. The curtain goes down and the actors retire to the green room. And there, the villain and the hero cease to be villain and hero, and they're just they're the actor. And then they come out in front of the curtain and they stand in a row and the audience applauds the villain along with the hero. The villain for having been a good villain. The hero for having been a great hero. The play is over. And everybody heaves a sigh of relief. Well, that was a great show, wasn't it? 
So the same idea, the green room is the Nirguna Brahman. That behind the whole show where there are no differentiations of I and thou, subject and object, good and evil, light and darkness, light and death. But within the sphere of the Saguna Brahman, all these differentiations appear because that's out in front, that's on the stage. And no good actor, when on the stage, performs his own personality. That's what's wrong with movie stars. They try to cast a person to act a role which corresponds to his alleged personality. But a great actor can assume any kind of personality, male or female, can suddenly convert himself right in front of the audience into somebody who takes you in entirely. But in the green room, he's his usual self. So Hinduism has the idea then, you see, it's all the conventions of drama go right along with it. That all this world is a big act. Leela, the play of the Supreme Self. And it's therefore compared to a dream, to a passing illusion. And uh, you should not therefore take it seriously. You may take it sincerely, perhaps, as an actor may be sincere in his acting, but not serious, because that means it throws you for a loop. Although that, of course, is involved, we do take it seriously. But you see, one of the great questions that you have to ask yourself, when you really get down to the nitty-gritty about your own inmost core, is, are you serious? Or do you know deep within you that you're a put-on? In the last session of this particular course, which is an introduction to Oriental philosophy, I tried to condense the fundamental principles of what you can call the central viewpoint of Hinduism, Vedanta, the, not so much the doctrine as the experiential realization that what you are basically is the same as the root and ground of the universe. In other words, in the formula Atman, the self is Brahman, the ground of being. Now today, I want to relate this way of playing hide and seek with the very design of Hindu society. Because Hinduism is um, difficult to characterize as a religion, especially because we belong to a religion where in its institutionalized form it can very well degenerate into a religion that's for Sundays only. That doesn't apply to every detail of life. In other words, when a Hindu brushes his teeth, it's a religious act. There is not such a thing as a Christian way of brushing your teeth. But in Hindu life, all the details of life are Hinduism. So then, underneath all the presuppositions of Hinduism can be found a transition from one kind of culture to another. From a hunting culture 
to an agrarian culture. And this explains a great deal about this way of life. Now, in a hunting culture, which is a culture on the move, nomadic, every man knows the whole culture. In other words, you do not get a high specialization, division of labor. A man who is a hunter has to know how to make clothes, how to skin animals, how to cook them, how to shoot them, how to trail them. He has to know every kind of skill because he's often alone. And in a hunting culture, you do not get a special division of priesthood from ordinary people. Every man in his own way is capable of being a priest, but some more so than others, not by virtue of any ordination or schooling that they've received, but by their receptivity, because the priest or holy man of a hunting culture is called a shaman. A shaman is an individual who separates himself from society for a certain period and goes alone into forests or mountains to commune with what he will usually call the ancestors. That is to say, with his basic origins. And he will find something by way of a spiritual experience for himself, not through any teacher, not through any previous authority. He finds it genuinely on his own. And the shaman, therefore, goes into solitude to find out who he really is. Because in society, everybody is busy telling you who you are and you rely on others to see yourself. But to find himself, in other words, to find out what all this really is all about. The spiritually minded man of the hunting culture goes alone. And so the culture of the American Indians is to a very large extent hunting culture and you will find the spiritual man of the American Indians is a shaman. However, when a hunting culture becomes settled, it becomes agrarian. There arises farming, looking after the land, and then you get a completely different kind of society. Let me suggest that it's something like this. Where do agrarian communities settle? Where do they build a village? Usually at a crossroads especially if roads be crossed with water, a river. And where the crossing meets, the agrarian village settles itself and protects itself by building a pale. We say a person is beyond the pale. That means he's an outcast, he lives outside the village, he's a pariah. But in the village, notice, 
that the pale having been built around the crossroads, it divides the village into four sections. And oddly enough, there are four divisions of labor in all fundamental agrarian societies. And these consist of one, the priests. You know the word clever, clerk, cleric, and clear are all the same word. It meant someone who's literate. Clever. Also clear. Put it down clearly. You can't do that unless you're literate. And so if you're a literate person, you're a cleric. And clergy is the same word as clever in Old English. Much conceit of clergy is an Old English phrase meaning he's intellectually snobbish. <laughs> so that's your cast number one. Cast number two, warrior. Or incidentally, ruler. Three, merchant or craftsman. And four, labor. Unskilled. So now, what are these? There are four castes or four roles. And in society where there's a division of labor because an agricultural society is more complex than a hunting culture. We immediately get division of labor and we all play different roles. That is to say, assume different masks for purposes of living in this kind of community. All of you, you see, are essentially, be, are essentially clerics. You are a, what the Hindus would call Brahmins, because you're all being trained in the university. So the, the, the Hindu name for this class is Brahmana, for this class Kshatriya, for this class Vaishya, and for this class Shudra. So those are the basis of the four castes. And so if you are in the pale, if you belong to the community, you have to be typified. They say, is you is or is you ain't? Into which of these do you fit? And you must fit into one of these. Now caste is something, of course, which has got a very bad name from a modern point of view, both modern point of view with us and with the modern India. Because they say, once you get into a caste, you're stuck. If you are born to a laborer, a laborer you must be. If you are born to a warrior, you must be a warrior or a ruler. You could never become a cleric. And we think that's pretty terrible. Because in our culture, we work under the assumption that you as an individual are free to choose whatever occupation you will follow. Uh, but unfortunately, this involves going to school. And for certain purposes, going to school is one of the worst things you can do. For example, if you want to become a completely fantastic expert carpenter, you have to begin the trade at the age of seven at the latest. 
And your father, if he is a carpenter, is obviously the best teacher you can have. In a very ancient form of agrarian culture, as in India or as in Japan or China, a young man who is son of a carpenter would become fascinated with his father's occupation. And that would mean a very special relationship would grow up between him and his father, which does not grow up in our culture. Because most of us do not know what our fathers are doing. They go away to a mysterious office or factory where they do something called making money. As, an incident, as a, the main reason for the incidental uh, occupation which they pursue there. Uh, but the, the children and the wife have no active part in that occupation whatsoever. They know Papa only as a kind of clown who returns home in the evening having made money and one dad's money is the same as another dad's money. It makes no difference except that everybody wants more. They don't give a damn how he gets it so long as he doesn't complain too much. So the child, instead of learning and participating in his close father relationship, in learning an occupation or a trade or an art, is sent off to an impersonalized institution to be taught to be everything and nothing. And therefore doesn't learn early enough any craft so as to become a true master of it. What is happening, for example, in Japan, where a father can no longer apprentice his son at seven years old to become a carpenter because he has to send him away to school to learn to be an insurance salesman. Uh, he uh, can't teach his child and then comes high school. And then when the kid gets out of high school, he's interested in girls. And it takes him until he's about 22 to be able to settle down to learn carpentry. And it's too late. Too late to attain real mastery. Because a great Japanese carpenter never uses a plan. He doesn't need a drawing. He does it all by eye. And can fit the most complicated joinery together by eye. And it's the same with the arts of weaving textiles, of making superb ceramics, jewelry. Any kind of gorgeous craftsmanship depends on beginning as a child. And so, all right, we can't buy it anymore in this country. There is not, on any kind of commercial basis, great craftsmanship available here. We have to go abroad to get it to so-called primitive societies. We must be content with plastic simulation. So there is something to be said, you see, for the caste system. I just wanted to present the other side of it. Now, however, in going through this system, there are certain stages, whatever caste you're in. There are three stages of life which are called ashrams. Ashram, uh, means really an abode. Uh, a center for spiritual study, for practicing yoga, will be called an ashram. But an ashram also means uh, an abode in the sense of a stage of life. And the three stages are one called brahmacharya. That means the stage of being a student. Two, grihastha. Household. 
In the third stage, Vanaprastha, that means forest dweller. Isn't that funny? Grihastha, householder, Vanaprastha, forest dweller. Because you see, in this order of society, you come into society and you go through one of its acts as a grihasta or householder. But when you arrive at the point in life where you have got a son by birth from yourself or by the marriage of your oldest daughter, a son who will take over your work, you give up being a householder and you become a forest dweller. In other words, you go outside the pale and back to the forest. With the idea of finding out who you really are. While you were in the community, you were playing a role. One of the four roles, or its subdivisions. And you came on as tinker tailor, soldier sailor, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. But that wasn't the real you. That was one of the masks of the Brahman. The true self behind everything. To find out the Brahman, who you really are, in order to get ready to die, you become Vanaprastha. Go back to the jungle, having fulfilled your work to the world. Now, in practice in India, this means that the head of the house often moves to a cottage in the backyard. You know, in the course of time, everything becomes sort of going through the motions. But the original idea was that he became. What do they call it in Sanskrit? Shramana. It's almost the word shaman. A shramana is a person who has gone back to live in the forest. And therefore he is in regard to society an upper outcast. There are also lower outcasts. Those are the aborigines. The people living in India before the Aryan invasion. Who later became the untouchables. They are not even Shudra, they are outside caste altogether. Like the Indians in the United States. They are true untouchables in our caste system. And their plight is so much worse than the Negroes, it's unbelievable. But they are outcasts. So the same thing happened in India. But the upper outcaste is a man who goes wild. And in Hindu society, you have the right to do that. You are respected if you voluntarily abandon caste. And of course, in doing so, you give up your name. And you take another name. Now, taking a new name is taking a new identity. An Indian in society may be Mr. Mukhopadhyaya. And that would be a family name indicating membership in a family. When he becomes a Shramana, however, he will take a name such as Brahmananda, Bliss of God. He takes a divine name. And the original idea of a Christian name, when you were baptized, is that you gave up the name Julius, as you might be a Roman, and took on instead the name Matthew, one of the apostles, one of the divine 
uh, beings of the Christian religion. Or you might take the name of an angel, Michael. Or in Spain or Mexico, even Jesus, Jesus. Jesus Maria would be a perfectly reasonable name for a man in Spanish culture. But you take on a divine name to indicate a transformation of the, your identity. But in this case, when you give up caste, you see, and return to the forest, you become a nobody. And therefore you take one of the names of that which is no one, namely the Brahman, the Supreme Self. Because it's no one in the sense that it's all ones. And therefore in itself no one. So you abandon caste and you abandon name, you give up property, you give up uh, both the responsibility and society uh, is uh, allowed to give up responsibility for you. If they give you arms, if they support you, that's for gravy. They don't have to do it and you don't figure that they owe it to you. But this, this kind of society has a profound respect for people who leave it. And they feel that a society cannot be healthy unless it somehow pays respect to people outside the pale. To non-joiners and outsiders who have indeed fulfilled some responsibility within society and then abandoned it. They would, I think, be a little uptight about hippies who would abandon society before having fulfilled a responsibility in it. But in a sense, every shramana is a sort of elderly hippie. Now, of course, uh, our hippies have a, a different problem in that they are critical of the very structure of the society in which they are asked to enter because they feel uh, that it is um, a rat race a game which has lost its quality they might even prefer a caste-like society of this kind uh, in that it might have a bit more quality because you see uh, in our society one works not as a vocation in this scheme of things, every vocation that you perform is called svadharma. And this word, the word dharma has many meanings. Dharma. It means uh, function, in one sense. It means the thing that is right for you. Here, sva is the same as the Latin suus. And so it is one's own, your own function, what we would call your vocation in life, svadharma. As we say, doing your own thing, that's svadharma. And so you have to find, as it were, your own thing. Now, uh, a job which you do purely for money can never be called a svadharma. Because you're doing it for another end, to make money, which has a purely symbolic value. But when you do a certain work, because that is what is your thing to do, you want to be a doctor, because you're fascinated with medicine. 
and all its problems. And you just, you like people so much that you want to heal them from their diseases. Or for the same reason you might want to be a nurse. Or you might be fascinated with problems of law and so become a lawyer. Or fascinated with religion and so become a minister. Then you've got a vocation. Because you would do that thing whether it paid you very much or whether it didn't. Because that's the one thing you have to do. If you're a painter, you have to paint. If you're a writer, you're one of those crazy people who just has to write. I'm a writer. I have to write. Whether it makes me money or whether it doesn't, I would still have to be a writer. So that's a svadharma. And every person's vocation in caste is supposed to be your thing, your svadharma. But uh, we feel in our culture, you see, that we have such a tremendous choice of svadharma that sometimes it's what the French call embarras de richesse. It's like uh, embarrassment of riches when you're confronted with one of those enormous menus in a restaurant which has so many things on it you can't make up your mind which to pick. Well now then, you see, as a person passes out of this, he gives up the social order and becomes a nobody. He then, in that sense, he goes back to the forest. He goes back from the organization, the role-playing of the agrarian culture, to the solitude of the hunting culture, to find out who he is alone all by himself. And so he becomes, in that sense, the upper outcast. The man who is respected by those people who are still in caste, because they say, without this kind of person, we should lose our sanity. We should become confused with our roles. Unless there's always the hermit in the forest to remind us that man is not his role, that he's something deeper than that. And that the true end of man is to play the game of hide and seek for a while and to get lost in these roles. But then to return back to nature, back to the way of the forest. And in later life, as distinct from infancy, with all that experience behind him, find out again who you really are, so that when death comes, what a funny thing will happen. Death comes and will find no one to kill. For while you are identified with your role, with your name, with your ego, there's someone to kill. But when you're identified with the whole universe, Death finds you already annihilated, and there's no one to kill. The problem is, we speak first of all of the unity of life, and then suddenly define the social orders as one, two, three, four, and the stages of life as one, two, three. Of course. Because the whole thing about the one is that it pretends to be many. See, that's, that's the gimmick. The game of hide-and-seek is dismemberment, falling apart, 
losing control, losing unity. Let's disintegrate. And then after you've been dismembered, let's remember and come back to oneself and know who it really was all the time. So the one implies the many and many imply one. And so it goes in and out. It's a systole and diastole, an in-breathing and out-breathing that goes on and on. Now you see it, now you don't. Can the whole know itself as one? Yes. You suddenly get to the extraordinary state where you see that all the variety in front of you you know, all, I look out in this room and it's a great variety. It's a wonderful patchwork of all sorts of different people and colors and things. But you get to the point where you see that that variety means one. Things, uh, the, the more different everything is, the more it proclaims its basic unity with everything else. It just shouts it. In other words, when I see a bright patch of orange next to a bright patch of blue, uh, the brighter that orange, the more it manifests the unity underlying everything. Now that sounds paradoxical, but that's the way I feel it. If all of you wore khaki, olive drab or something, <laughs> I would feel uniformity rather than unity. I would say, well that's a drag. Everybody trying to look the same. That's fake unity. It would feel like a, a plastic champagne glass. Horrible. You know, it warms the champagne instead of that cold crystal. See? And say, that's fake unity. Away with it. But when everybody comes on himself, you know, in a natural way, then I see true unity in through the variety. See, in this society we are exposed to so much information. Radio, television, newspapers, magazines, books tell us all sorts of attractions about things that other people are doing and we're always wishing we were in somebody else's shoes. Because we know so much and we're informed so much. But in this kind of culture, everybody is settled for the fact that one day is just like another and that they do what has to be done, what is in the course of things. And we don't approve of this because we say it's lacking in friskiness, adventure, and get up and go. But on the other hand, they turn around to us and say, you are completely unstable. You are so frisky, you are so nervous. You can't stay still for two seconds. You can't stick to a job. You can't do anything stable. You're utterly unreliable, and you will probably blow up the planet. And uh, it's legitimate for the simple reason that technology is getting rid of the need to earn a living. And many of us will soon have to be paid not to work. At which point we can become vanaprastha, 
right away. <laughs> so, uh, as technology develops, that means the leisure society. And uh, we're going to have to find ways of living in which one's self-respect does not depend upon one's productivity. In Europe, we have the same caste system. In the feudal system, lords spiritual, lords temporal, commons, and serfs. Now, by becoming anyone from any of the lower castes can become a priest or a cleric. And the minute you became a priest, cleric, monk, or whatever, you were at an angle to all the other castes. You could mix with the others. Yes, sir. What about this problem of the separation of ages in this kind of culture? Well now, it is a little easier for them because the rate of social change is not what it is with us. In a settled agrarian culture, the essential way of living remains the same for centuries. And only violent change occurs when technology is introduced and then everything is blown wide open. But in an Indian village today, they are doing all the essential processes of life exactly the same way they were done a thousand years ago. And for this reason, the tension between the generations is very small. The son and the daughter expect and know no other alternative than doing what father and mother have done. And of course this brings them close together, especially where the son or the daughter is constantly all day long associated with the work of father and mother. Now you know that little children today, little boys under the school age, little girls under the school age, always are interested in what their parents are doing and want to join in but are not allowed to do so because they can't go to the office with their father and the mother is always in a hurry because instead of having spent most of the day preparing dinner in the kitchen she's been out to the coffee clutch, the League of Women Voters or some such dissipation and uh, it comes back and then she's in a hurry and she doesn't want some little girl buzzing around uh, having to teach her how to boil an egg or how to bake a cookie uh, unless she's patient, unless she gives time for that kind of thing. But little girl is very, very eager indeed to find out how to do what mama does. But she mustn't because she might make a mess. So instead of that, little girl is given a toy, a toy cooking stove and a toy baby to look after. The child is annoyed that the cooking stove doesn't really work, that the toy baby doesn't wee-wee properly, even though they've tried to make it that way. And the little boy is even more annoyed that the toy gun doesn't kill anything. 
So uh, every day by about five o'clock in the afternoon, just before the father of the family returns, the entire house is littered with broken plastic and smashed toys that have been torn apart in fury. So there develops a knock-down, drag-out battle between the mother and the children to throw all that stuff into the bottom of a closet mixed up with sucked lollipops and half-chewed bubble gum before daddy comes home. And because she wants the house to look like a nice home for him. So this awful trauma occurs in which the children are addled and have to be gassed with television. And the mother is in no fit mood to be the loving cook of a superb dinner. So she gets some frozen up stuff that can be thrown together in a hurry. Fixes Papa a couple of martinis that he won't know what he's eating anyway. <laughs> I don't know if I answered the question. I may have got sidetracked. <laughs> I think we've got to realize that uh, children are benefited by being exposed to a considerable number of adults and that in default of the old family relation households where in other words a mother and father have a grandmother and a grandfather living with them several aunts uncles and cousins and it's a big household based on blood relationship uh, it's very difficult to do that today because the speed of social change makes it difficult for one generation to live with the tastes of another. But what we are going to do is all couples of the same generation will join together and they will have separate dwelling quarters round a central service area where they have common washing machines, common kitchen, common recreational facilities and any set of children can be exchanged with any set of parents so that if your children get sick of you they can go to live with somebody else's parents and I remember as a child that uh, some of the most educative periods of my life were when I went to live with other families and we often you see as kids we invited other kids to come and stay with us and share our family life I suppose that goes on here just the same but still those are very productive periods when you find out how another family lives. So, and all this, this solves the babysitting problem. It solves the problem of having to own too many cars, too many dishwashers, uh, and all that sort of thing. Your, your, your dishwasher or your laundry machine is idle most of the day. Why isn't somebody using it? I have been emphasizing all along that the central core of the kinds of oriental philosophy that we're talking about is not theory but experience. And the trouble here is that so long as one attempts to communicate this philosophy in words, we remain in the area of theory and do not necessarily transfer over into experience. It is then for this reason that in addition 
to the scriptures or uh, verbal teachings of Hinduism, there is a discipline whose object is to enable an individual to realize what the words are about. I would use so strong a word for realization as sensation because the realization of the Tattvam Asi, the Upanishadic proposition that you're it, uh, comes over you if you do have the experience, not so much as um, you feel convinced that the earth goes round the sun, even though you don't actually see this happening. It's not so much like that as it is like an immediate sensation of the thing which the proposition Tattvamasi is trying to say. And so this entering into the experience, which is the heart of Hinduism, is the function of a discipline called yoga. The word yoga, Y-O-G-A, don't say, as many people do, yogi. Yogi is one who practices yoga, and a yogini is a female practitioner of yoga. But yoga is the same word as yoke. Latin yungari, to join, and English union. The yoke between two oxen may be regarded equally as a discipline and as a joining of the two oxen. So the basic meaning of yoga is something like union. The realization, in other words, of the union of what we call the separate individual with the ultimate ground of being, Brahman. We don't know how early yoga is in India, but there are statues found in Mohenjo-daro in the Indus Valley, dating from at least 2000 BC, of figurines in the posture familiarly associated with yoga, the Padmasana or the full lotus posture, in which uh, all, almost all Buddhas are seen to be sitting, with the legs crossed and these feet up on the thighs, soles upwards. It apparently then is something quite ancient and uh, was in some way absorbed and assimilated to the Aryan civilization which invaded India from the north somewhere between 15 and 1200 BC. Yoga was apparently, like everything else in those days, handed down as an oral tradition and was not committed to any kind of written record until there appeared 
a book called the Yoga Sutra. Sutra really means thread, uh, but I suppose through the idea of threaded leaves, ancient manuscripts in India were written on palm leaves, came to mean a scripture or book, sacred book, and the Yoga Sutra is associated with a gentleman named Patanjali, P-A-T-A-N-J-A-L-I, and is of uncertain date. It may be as early as 200 BC, it may be a bit later. But this is the standard text on the practice of yoga. There are Chinese forms of yoga, which probably originated independently at the same time, out of the Taoist way of life, and they subsequently had considerable influence on India, as did the Indian ways on the Chinese. Now, it's important to study the Yoga Sutra from its opening, or second to opening phrase, its second verse. Its first verse says, now yoga is explained. And the commentators attach particular importance to the word now, because the assumption is that something else has gone before. In other words, you are expected to be a reasonably sensible, rational and mature human being before you engage on this particular path. In the same way as I pointed out to you in the last session, that the Hindus have the view that a man should fulfill the duties of the householder before he engages upon the spiritual life. So in the same way there are certain preparations before you start out on yoga. And those preparations usually involve having mastered whatever the disciplines of your culture may be, the essential disciplines of your culture, so that you know how to handle them. So that if you get into the higher states of consciousness which yoga brings about, you won't run amok uh, because not being able to distinguish between good and bad from a social point of view. The next verse says in Sanskrit, I'll write it down because it's um, important to look at each word. It says yogas chitta vritti nirodha. This means yoga is chitta is a very difficult word to translate into English because in Sanskrit there are about five words for mind, for our one. Well, we have mind, we have consciousness, we have awareness, thought, but they're all very vaguely defined and we use them interchangeably. Chitta is a more precise word and I would say awareness. Vritti uh, comes from a root which means to turn turn around. And so you get the idea of um, turbulence, vicious circling, whirlpooling, uh, wavering. Uh, anyway, going round and round and round. 
So yoga is awareness, turbulence, stopping. There it is, all in one sentence. You can take this sort of analogy, which is used by yoga teachers. Take it that awareness is something like a pool of water. When the water is quite still, you can see in it the reflection of the sky and everything in the bottom of the pool. When it's muddy and turbulent, you can't. So in the same way, your awareness of the world is like reflecting pool. And if it's turbulent, you don't see clearly. You're not clearly aware. You don't have a mind like a mirror. You have a mind like a distorting mirror, which keeps wiggling. So, yoga then is the art of stilling the mind. There are various schools of thought about what a still mind is. According to one school of thought, the goal of yoga is samadhi. Well, everybody agrees that samadhi is what it's all about. What is this word samadhi? It refers to a state of consciousness which is sam. Don't say sam, that's different. <laughs> sam, related to our word sam, from the Latin summa, eventually Sanskrit sam. Complete, total, also related to the word same. Looking on everything equally, having an equal mind towards all events. Samarasa in Sanskrit, equanimity, calmness, uh, having as it were the same attitude in victory and defeat. Also same in the sense of the knower and the known are the same. There is no further division between myself on the one hand and what I am aware of on the other. It's all one, samadhi. In yoga, there are differentiated two kinds of samadhi. One is called vikalpa, and the other is called nirvikalpa. The word vikalpa means an idea or conception. So there could be a samadhi with an idea in it of some kind, a concept. Nirvikalpa would mean without a concept. Or a samadhi produced by way of a gimmick, a technique, and the ideal samadhi, look mama, no hands, no gimmick. But some schools, as I was saying, there are different opinions about what this all means. Interpret nirvikalpa samadhi as being a state in which there is such a degree of absorption or of trance that there is no awareness left of the physical world. You are completely 
Well, if a psychiatrist looked at you, he would say you were catatonic. Sitting in that posture, immobile, absorbed, wrapped. And this is held by one school of thought to be the highest attainment of the human mind. I don't agree with this point of view. I follow another school of thought, which has a different idea of nirvikalpa samadhi. And this, in my view and that of others, it is not the total sensation of sensory input, but simply the, the cessation of conceptions, of thoughts about what you are experiencing. And therefore, that the meaning of citta vritti niroda is not, as the other school interprets it, getting a perfectly blank mind. But it means two things in my interpretation. One, a mind that is not going in vicious circles. And two, the mind free from the hypnotic influence exercised by thoughts, ideas, words. So then let's consider first of all, what is a mind in the grip of vicious circles? Well, one of the most obvious instances that we all know is the phenomenon of worry. The doctor tells you that you have to have an operation. And that has been set up so that automatically everybody worries about it. But since worrying takes away your appetite and your sleep, it's not good for you. So the doctor tells you not to worry because he wants you on the operating table in a state of good health, well rested, etc. But you can't stop worrying, and therefore you get additionally worried that you are worrying, and therefore will not be in the right shape to be on the operating table. And then, furthermore, because that is quite absurd, and you're mad at yourself because you do it, you are worried because you worry because you worry. That is a vicious circle. Another form of vicious circle is when a person is convinced that they ought to be unselfish and are so convinced for selfish reasons. I would like to think of myself as an unselfish person because that's the sort of person I'm supposed to be. So therefore I have a selfish reason for wanting to be unselfish and because of that, no amount of effort will ever succeed in making me unselfish, but will only succeed in sending me around in circles. I'll be proud that I'm humble. <laughs> Etc. <laughs> that is citta vritti, turnings of the mind. See? So now, yoga is initially stopping that. Can you allow your mind to be quiet? Isn't it difficult? Because the mind seems to be like a monkey, jumping up and down and jabbering all the time. Once you've learned to think, you can't stop. 
and an enormous number of people devote their lives to keeping their minds busy and feel extremely uncomfortable with silence. When you're alone, say in a doctor's waiting room, which may be very uninteresting, nobody's saying anything, there's nothing to do, there's this, this worry. This uh, lack of distraction. I'm left alone with myself. And I want to get away from myself. I'm always wanting to get away from myself. That's why I go to the movies. That's why I read mystery stories. That's why I go after the girls or anything that you do or get drunk or whatever. I don't want to be with myself. I feel queer. I feel like, uh, you know how it is when you run your fingernails up a blackboard on a cold day? <laughs> Creepy. So, well, why do you want to run away from yourself? What's so bad about it? Why do you want to forget this? Why do you want to become absorbed? Because you are addicted to thoughts. And this is a drug, a real dangerous one. Compulsive thinking going on and on and on and on and on all the time. It's a habit. As you keep telling yourself where you are, who you are, what's going on, how good it is, how bad it is, Reading the newspaper of your mind. You know a lot of people, they get hold of a newspaper, and the newspaper reads them, they don't read it. <laughs> newspaper is designed to read you. Typographers, the layout people, very carefully calculated how to carry your eye from one end of it to another. So there's a difficulty about stopping that activity. And you really have to stop it if you want to be sane. Because if I talk all the time, I don't hear what anyone else has to say. And then I'll end up in the situation of having nothing to talk about but my own talking. Or so in exactly the same way, if I think all the time, I won't have anything to think about except thoughts. And that's the academic fallacy. See, when you add books to the library, a great many of the books that are added to the library are books about books. They're not necessarily books about life, some of them are, but most of the books, especially PhD dissertations, are books about books about books about books. And that doesn't really get us very far. So in order to have something to think about, there are times when you simply must stop thinking. You can learn later on in yoga how to be in the state of samadhi and think at the same time. But first of all, you have to learn how to stop thinking. Well, how do you do that? The first rule is don't try to. Because if you do, you will be like someone trying to make rough water smooth with a flat iron. And all that will do will stir it up. So, in the same way as a muddy, turbulent pool quiets itself when left alone, you have to know how to leave your mind alone. It will quiet itself. There are certain things, however, which help. And the yogis tend to use 
two techniques for assisting their minds to become calm. One is breathing. That is called pranayama. Prana means breath or the vital force of the body. Pranayama, the discipline of breath. And the other is called mantra. It's, all, it's connected with pranayama. It's connected with breathing, but it's uh, chanting, chanting sounds. And both of these have a slightly auto-hypnotic effect, which helps one to quiet thoughts. Um, these days, many hippies go around wearing beads. Anybody got beads on? What do you wear beads for? Do you know why you wear them? Do you know what beads are for? Beads are for yoga. This is a Tibetan rosary, which has been blessed by the Dalai Lama. And uh, they um, wear them on the hand, rather. Well, they carry them around the neck, but they usually use them in the hand. And they will do for timing. You've got your yoga practice for the day, and so many rounds of the beads will time you. And either you use the beads for breathing, in, out on one bead, in, out on the next bead, in, out on the next bead, and so. Now they have uh, essentially, the breathing in yoga is not forced. You don't do kind of breathing exercises in a forced way. You have, first of all, to find out how your lungs want to breathe. Let them do that and count your breath with your fingers rather than using numbers. Try and keep away from concepts and numbers are concepts. That's why you use your fingers on the beads instead. And for every in-breath and out-breath you use one bead. Just experiencing breathing and experiencing the sensation of the beads passing your fingers. Don't think about it. Don't try not to think about it. But uh, the, the bead and the breathing will distract you from thinking. And you will find that in due course, the breath will automatically become slower and slower and slower with great ease. Until it seems that you're hardly breathing at all, it's so slow. Now, for some people, that is not so easy to concentrate on. So it makes it easier to concentrate if you add to the breathing a mantra. And uh, so the mantra means the chanting of certain syllables which although they do have a meaning and they are maybe the names of the divinity they very soon cease to have a meaning as you use them. So uh, the Tibetans use such a mantra as Om Mani Padme Aham Or Hindus use sometimes just with beads, Ram, 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 
or uh, more complicated ones. Om Ram Shri Ram Jai Jai Ram. Om Ram Shri Ram Jai Jai Ram. Om Ram Shri Ram Jai Jai Ram. All such things. Or uh, many, many varieties of these mantras. And if you keep doing that, you find you're getting into another state of consciousness. You're not thinking in the ordinary way. As the words, let's take any English word, take the word yes. We know, we think we know, yeah, yes means, it means yes, you know, I will. But say it several times, yes, 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 yes. And strike you, we use that funny noise, yes, 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 yes. And after a while it stops meaning anything, this becomes a noise. That's the way you, through using thought symbols, you free the mind from thought. It's like using a thorn to pick out a thorn that's stuck in the skin. And so, uh, yoga uses those. And breathing. To help the mind to become quite still. Now those you see are Vikalpa in that they are gimmicks. So through breathing and uh, mantras and so on, you get Vikalpa Samadhi, Samadhi, Samadhi with gimmicks. And that means that you have a crutch for your religion. It depends on some kind of an extraneous device. But the ideal of yoga is called the natural state, which in Sanskrit is uh, sahaja. To be in the state of realization without having any religious gimmickry. What Spiegelberg of Stanford used to call the religion of no religion. Again, it's look mama no hands. So that you don't need to do anything special, or to think any special thought, or to say any special prayer, or to have any particular ritual on which you depend for getting into the realized state of consciousness. But you're in it naturally all the time. That's nirvikalpa samadhi. And this means then that you could seem to the outsider as living a perfectly normal life. That you eat when you're hungry and sleep when you're tired and you go about your business and nobody can tell you from just anyone else unless they know you very well. And that's considered in all Hindu and Buddhist thinking, very, very fine achievement. It's c compared with a bird flying through the sky and leaving no tracks. Or with geese flying over a lake. And although they are reflected in the lake, they don't disturb the water. They leave no trace. 
So one might say that the ideal of yoga is to go through religion and get rid of religion. Because religion is a medicine. And it, sh it should not be a diet. That you see is a fundamental difference between physicians and clergymen. A physician tries to get rid of his patients. He gives them medicine in the hope that they will go away and not come back. But unfortunately, the clergyman tries to get you hooked on the medicine so that you'll come to church every Sunday and pay your contribution to pay off the mortgage. That's a very serious problem with churches. The investment in buildings and such liabilities. But the doctor, you see, although they have these hospitals, they hope that the turnover will be big enough <laughs> to uh, pay for it. And they can't get a big turnover unless they're successful in getting rid of patients. But the patients who have been successfully got rid of go and recommend this doctor to other patients. And so they keep coming through because they're always sick people. And the, the Hindu, in a way, and especially the Buddhist, take very much this view of religion. Religion is not something to get hooked up on. A person hung up on religion or hung up on yoga is felt to be still in bondage. So yoga is to get rid of yoga. And come to the final state here called Nirvikalpa Samadhi where you are in the realized state naturally. Now of course the doctrine of the Upanishads is that everybody is in the state of union, of yoga, of union with Brahman whether you know it or whether you don't. And so, trying to have that state naturally is really and truly doing something redundant. You are trying to be where you are, to become what you are. But that's because you don't know you're there. And we can see, if we go back, why you don't know that you're there. Because if you are the Brahman, you in the beginning of things deliberately pretended you weren't. Only you did it so well that by now you've forgotten you did it. And so to wake up again, you have to press on trying to get back, although that's unnecessary. You will only learn that it's unnecessary through trying to get there sort of making a fool of yourself, trying to get what you already have. So that in a way, I've been told that there are idiots who sit in padded cells trying to catch their thumb. You know, you put your hand round your thumb like this, so here's your thumb wiggling like that, and then you say, oops, let's try and catch it. No, no, it went away. No. <laughs> <laughs> now it's gone. Oh, see, you, you can't catch it. Because, of course, it's 
The thing you're trying to catch is the catcher. So in the same way, when you set out to realize that you are the ground of being, the Brahman, you're doing just that. You're trying to catch your own thumb. See? And it doesn't work. And you think, oh dear, this is becoming a very difficult task. I must ask my teacher about it. Uh, I must be sure he's a good teacher because I've set myself this very, very tough problem. <laughs> but it's a silly problem. Only in most cases it takes years of sweating at it to see how silly it is. But that's all it amounts to. Basically. So what happens in yoga is that you get a set of hurdles, discipline hurdles to go through. And I'm only giving you a very, very sketchy account of this because I could go into all kinds of technicalities. But you can read those in the books. All about the chakras up the spine and the complicated ways of breathing to awaken the different chakras or levels of consciousness and all that jazz. But all that is jazz, essentially, over certain fundamental principles. What I want to be sure of is that you get the fundamental principles. That, in other words, uh, you have lost your sense of harmonious uh, coherence with the whole domain of being. And you're puzzled as to what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do, how I ought to be, uh, how to control my mind, how to do this, that and the other. And everybody has contradictory advice for you. He who hesitates is lost. Look before you leap. Many hands make work light. Too many cooks spoil the broth. I mean, religion, everything, wisdom is full of contradictory advice. So they say to you in the end, ah, but you see, it takes a wise man to know when to do which. Well, they say, you say, how do you become wise? Well, it's a matter of experience. It's like you apply for a job and they say, well, how much experience do you have? You say, I haven't had a job before. Well, you must get one. Then we can give you one. To him that hath shall be given. And that's the same way all these people talk. You ask a question and the guru answers. When you know the answer, you won't ask the question. Well, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> all this frustration. But you see, the real meaning is the question you're asking is a false problem. You're asking, in other words, why do people inquire into religions? Why do they go to teachers? Why do they want spiritual exercises and practices? Because they feel unhappy. Because they feel Well, not really because they feel, because they think. When you feel unhappy, that's one thing. But when you think you feel unhappy, that's much more of a problem. 
because you keep repeating over and over and over to yourself. Gee, I feel depressed. Oh, I feel just so put down. And you wrap your tongue around that, like, you know, when you've got a filling out of a tooth, your, your tooth keeps wandering into the, I mean, your tongue keeps wandering into the hollow left by the filling, and you fuss with it. The same piece of time if you get an itch or something, you keep scratching it. Some people, if they get a pain in a certain part of the body, keep moving it so the pain is there. And uh, they wonder if it's still there, and they can't help doing that, you see. So in this way, we talk ourselves into problems. And so all this kind of thing starts up. But actually, the, the problem is an attempt to solve an impossible conundrum. That's the most frustrating problem of all. See, all sensible questions have sensible answers. How do you cook swordfish steak? Problem. Well, someone can tell you. It's quite simple. How do I draw a square circle? Well, the question doesn't mean anything. So naturally, there's no answer to it. So how can I get myself into a state where I'm always happy? How can we arrange things in this room so that they're all up? Silly question. So was the other one. How can I attain peace of mind? Well, there's a Zen story about that, where the master says, bring out your mind and I'll pacify it. And the questioner says, but when I look for, um, for my mind, I can't find it. He said, there, it's pacified. <laughs> so that's the sort of thing that's going on in yoga. You know, you think you're a problem to yourself. And so that guru says, find you. There was this great sage in India, Sri Ramana Maharshi. And people used to come, but he lived in modern times. It's not the same as the Maharishi that you know about from recent times. But Ramana, he was a wonderful man with the most beautiful, big, humorous eyes. And always sat half naked with a little loincloth around him. And he'd sit in a kind of patio or a compound and read the newspaper. And sometimes he'd meditate and sometimes he'd sleep. And sometimes he'd answer questions. And throngs of people came from all over the world and sat in this compound just to watch him. And there were chickens around scratching and mothers feeding their babies and dogs and so on. And he took very little notice of it all. But they just wanted to sit in his presence. And they would come to him and say, Oh, Maharshi, uh, who was I in my past life? And he'd come back and say, Who wants to know? Oh, Maharshi, uh, how many years will it take me to attain liberation? He'll say, Who wants to attain liberation? Always he'd throw every question back on the source of the question. Who are you? Well, that's something you see you can't get hold of. 
That's this thing, you see. Who am I? Wow. Who am I? Can't get it. <laughs> so the yoga teacher sets you to doing this as fast as he can get you going. As ruthlessly, as relentlessly. Who are you? Find out when you breathe. What is breathing? Find out when you know. What is knowing? Get to the root of the matter. Ask, 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 inquire, inquire, inquire. And one day, you, it all becomes clear. And it's so simple, that is the most difficult thing in the world to explain. It's like, you just see, ah, well this is it. This is the way it is. There is no problem about it. Death, suffering, these aren't problems. They're awful if they are problems. The worst kind of suffering is that which you think there might be a way out of. When you know there isn't, it's easier to bear. So, this sense of it all being perfectly clear and simple and transparent. This experience now that you are having at this moment is what it's about. This is the beatific vision. This is cosmic consciousness. This is where it's at, baby. You know? And it just becomes clear like that. But you see, when you say that to someone who may not have had such an experience, they say, hmm, so what? You mean it's just, it's just what's going on now? I would say, why do you use the word just for what's going on now? Because that means you're only half awake, if, if awake at all. You are bolting your life, like some people bolt their food. And you think you've experienced now. Or you say, I have now, after now, after now, after now, after now. I boop, that one goes down, boop, that one goes down, boop, that one goes down, boop, that one goes down. I still feel hungry. I want the good one. I hope that somewhere down on the end of the line in the future, there's going to be a sudden now experience which will be, nah, that's the thing I wanted. <laughs> but tomorrow never comes. Wow, we're back with Alan Watts's dissertation on Hinduism, touching on various points. I noticed as we listened to these recordings that they were from different times, different lectures, touching on different things, but kind of having a underlying theme you would say the uh the hinduism the upanishads vedanta so much going on uh and i learned a lot of new words my podcast is my svadharma is that the right word Did i say that right Brent? no it's your svadharma svadharma my podcast is my svadharma Thank which is you. like your dharma like sva like your personal dharma like you're 
your thing, your role. Wow, Dharma. That'd be a great uh, DJ name or band. Yes, and your first album will be called Vibrations of the Cosmic Diaphragm. I thought about that. It could be like a black metal band, like, you know, just like Oh, yeah, definitely. Cosmic Diaphragm. Well, I was thinking the other thing, but... uh, I guess that works too. You know, it's just metal. It's all metal. It's all metal. They can say whatever they exactly. want. Exactly. Let them yoga. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's one of the things that Alan Watts touched on. He touched on yoga. He touched on Hinduism. There, I learned so much, and now I definitely feel somewhat more educated. Don't take yourself too seriously. You're it. I like that. He's keep talking about that. You're it. His future predictions paid not people paid not to work i thought that was interesting that was, was like, kind of hey, interesting right yeah that was uh interesting Brand future deep. moment he had there you always take such amazing notes perhaps you'll publish them one day as a book <laughs> but uh tell me what are some of the things that you uh you wrote about there in your notes well i was gonna say first of all regarding my notes i tend to find these notes in pockets and coats and purses later on after I've shoved them in whatever I had here and find them at home later. And it's always actually super fun to read them and see what we were well, listening to and what's going on those. in my head. I am saving them. You know, year a hundred years from now, all my as scribble people, scratch notes are going to be with little illustrations. Yeah, they'll publish be. it because the people will love our podcast so much that you've yeah. been so gracious to share your time with. But what? Yeah, tell me points. Let's hear about the points. <laughs> points. Well, I mean, I was just going to say, going back to the beginning, um, like how he just breaks down the difference of the Hindu philosophy versus uh, the Judeo-Christian gods you know talking about whoever you are it's not god versus god is all there is like that's such a different such a different place to be coming from whether an individual or a society or a religion however you're working when think of your perspective just those two different things like whoever you are it's not god and then to be everything is god brushing your teeth is god like that's all um all in there. It's um, interesting just to think of that radiating from the initial point out into the universe. It Um, is pretty powerful. I mean, it is a different paradigm. It's a different mode of thinking versus Western religious tradition. And it makes sense. It seems like 101, like common sense, everything's made out of God, the divine, that one thing, Mm -hmm. original substance. You back it up. You just keep backing it up matter energy you're backing it up backing it up it all starts from one point right and that and point is consciousness it's divine matter manifests from consciousness and more i mean it's just one aspect it's not even the complete whole though it does contain the complete whole within its aspect mm-hmm. you know chew on that one for a while <laughs> and he has a great sense of humor i uh yeah, funny guy he's a funny guy it was fun to listen to him talk about that you know the supreme being playing this game and forgetting hide and you seek. know hide and seek and and playing the game and playing it so well you forget you're in the game and i mean i see children do this all the time when they're in a game of pretend and they're so fully in it that they have no idea that they're the four-year-old over here. They're completely in their role. They're in their a character. dragon or they're. Yeah, exactly. And you really, you know, I mean, and 
it's like snapping them out of another universe to be like, Hey, over here, we're going to have a snack. Um, so that's, uh, yeah. One little microcosm of that. Uh, Oh, I thought it was really interesting when he was talking about the casts and the sort of upper outcast at the end. Um, I did not know that term beyond the pale, that that was sort of what that was referring yeah, to. I learned that, that was as kind well. of interesting. Yeah. That you were beyond the bounds of accepted society, but that in Hinduism, that that was something that was respected and almost, you know, just a normal thing to do at the end of your life. You would pass off your vocation. You'd pass off your podcast at the end of your podcasting time and you'd head off into the forest to find out who you really are. So who's taking over? Uh, are you going to be the host? <laughs> I'm going off into the forest. <laughs> you go beyond the pale. Yes. But, but what he said, it was the little thing he said, uh, when in the forest and you've given up your vocation, death will find no one to kill because when you identify with the whole universe, death finds you already destroyed. So, exactly. And yeah. at that point you're in the quantum dimension. It's a exactly. quantum It's experience. beyond, there's no. It's omnipresence. It's that quantum consciousness. You're outside of life and death. And so when death shows up, you're already destroyed, right? So that, what right. Saying? Yes. And that leads into the foundation of the Upanishads that he was speaking of about how you are, you are in union, whether or not you know it. And so if you release all that and you, you know, find yourself understanding that you are one with the universe, that that union just happens and it's the trying and, and all of that that keeps you separate. And I like how he talked about the green room of the universe, yes. the Saguria, hopefully I got that right. Saguna Brahman. And it just kind of makes sense as a person that's had very powerful psychedelic experiences. You actually get to experience that. You can go to the backstage of reality, the green room of the universe and see that pre state prior to the next stage of manifestation. And when I say see, I would say you get glimpses of it because you, you can't really hold your consciousness in those higher dimensions as a physical being for too long or and bring really, it all back exactly as you experienced it. Yes. And also I'm sure people that practice deep meditation and practice it for years and really get that same experience. They can go there as well. Right. With the pranayama and the chanting, that's also yes. yeah able to get outside, outside those limitations. Yeah. And the green room part where he was talking about, um, you know, at the end of the play, when you're watching, you know, a physical play that at the end it's the villain and the hero come out and they bow together and everyone claps for them being a good villain and a, and a good hero that all those, you know, separate things are just acts of, of that one Supreme being trying out these different roles. And in the end, um, you know, it, it was all just a show. So yes. Well, we're trying Could you remember out. when you're feeling like, you know, pissed off at someone or feeling like, you know somebody's right and somebody's wrong and all of that to remember at the end, you're just going to bow on stage together. Yes, exactly. At the end. And we're playing good roles. I'm playing the role of Jake Weaver podcast host. <laughs> I also wear other hats. Bryn Anderson's playing the role of vital force herbs, herbalist and so many other hats herself. 
Of course, you can check her out, vitalforceherbs.com. And thank you all for listening to this with us. It's always informative. We're trying to learn more. We're trying to gain more knowledge. So we took a little deep dive into Hinduism and really a deep dive into the Alan Watts frequency. I always make the cheesy joke. We're seeing what's up, you know, sorry, I'm going to stop with that. But don't think too much. Yeah. Right? Don't think Overthinking too much. is a dangerous drug and it's addictive. You can, you can get addicted to thinking, mm-hmm. but good thing you know, to remember. I mean, I, you got to take breaks. This is where meditation comes into right. play. Learn to meditate. And then when you do have those powerful moments of inspiration and you're breaking things down and you're really figuring things out, that you're not overdoing it. You're not taxing the processor to the point of extreme exhaustion. You're taking those breaks. And speaking of breaks, we're going to take a week-long break. And we'll see you next week, next Thursday. It's always debuting on Thursdays. So we'll see you next week. Bye. Midnight on Earth.